Welcome to the Modern Yogi Podcast. An exploration of ancient wisdom. Hello, hello everyone. Welcome back. We are on episode number 38. 38. <laughs> We're nice. so happy you've all stuck to the journey to listening day in, day out, or I guess week in, week out. Uh, <laughs> yes. Every and, week. Yeah. And we are on chapter number six, text number 10. And if you're following along and if you have any questions, you can always check out our Instagram at Modern Yogi Podcast. At Modern Yogi Podcast. At Modern Yogi Podcast. Send us a DM, <laughs> any questions, comments, concerns, let us know, and we will answer it on air. Beautiful. And a quick recap, Shamali. Alrighty, tidy. So this chapter we started, Dhyana Yoga. So Dhyana means meditation. We just ended the whole section on Karma Yoga. And it's interesting because there's a whole ladder that's compared to the, uh, the eightfold system of yoga that is divided into three sections. Dhyana Yoga dhyana yoga and bhakti yoga so these are the three parts of the ladder all leading up to the highest which is bhakti yoga and essentially dhyana means meditation so we're trying to really go within meditate on the self we talked about karma yoga which is action in comparison dhyana yoga is within it's an internal state of meditation but at the same time bhakti or devotion or love of krishna is the highest because it encompasses all of the previous steps of the ladder are encompassed within bhakti yoga. Okay, so, pop quiz, pop quiz, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dhyana with a D. Uh-huh. What is it? I feel like you're the student that just did not hear what I said. It's meditation. I just said I that. I know, but if people zoned out during your... Oh, people, from yeah, people. Yeah, sure, yeah, sure, sure. Not her. Not her. I was paying attention to you. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, pop quiz. All right, uh-huh. Dhyana. I literally just said meditation, dude. <laughs> Bhakti. <laughs> uh, devotion. Love. Jnana. Knowledge. Karma. Karma, karma. Work. Work. There we go. <laughs> what's your name? Shamali. What's yeah! your name? <laughs> she won. You passed. Five out of five. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks. Very nice, very nice. <laughs> ah, that so that's totally <laughs> derailed my thought process. Oh, so my bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I can repeat it for you one more time. Okay, so we talked about jnana yoga. Yes, yes, right? yes. Which is knowledge. We talked about karma yoga, beautiful, which is work and action. And then we talked about dhyana yoga, which we're talking about right now, right. which is meditation. Right. And then at the end, we're going to realize that bhakti yoga is like the, the thing highest. that holds yeah, the oh. most, right? right? So that's... And side note, if someone hears karma and thinks, like, well, how is that connected to action? Right, because, you know, for every opposite and equal, for every action, action we get an, an opposite, opposite and equal reaction. So right. we do something good, good karma, something bad, bad karma. But that's all through action, through, through we're, we're accruing that karna, karna. Ah, karma <laughs> through action, the pop quiz. Ah, <laughs> Don't blame that, that was like three minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Don't blame me for that. That was like 30 seconds ago. <laughs> okay, right. anyway say the whole purpose of this yoga system is essentially to control the mind and draw it away from basically attachment to sense objects yeah and then they kind of get into how strong the mind is right and there's the famous like you know for one who has conquered the mind the mind is the best of friends but if one fails to do so the mind will remain the greatest of enemies yes yeah so that's kind of where we've been for the past couple of texts um and then the last one kind of ended on the note of or the last two ended on the note of book knowledge without self-realization is useless right so we're talking about like what are the procedures for this meditation and so we're going to be start talking about what it looks like right right so the invocation that is let's do it 
Translation, I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances onto him. Beautiful. All right, chapter six, text number 10. Praise Let's Arshini. do it. All right. A transcendentalist should always engage his body, mind, and self in realize, in relationship with the Supreme. Let me try that again. It was the pop quiz, I know. <laughs> Guys, it was so long ago. <laughs> I kid, I kid. <laughs> okay. A transcendentalist should always engage his body, mind, and self in relationship with the Supreme. He should live alone in a secluded place and should always carefully control his mind. He should be free from desires and feelings of possessiveness. Okay, mm. so I get this whole body, mind, and self in relationship with God. Engage yourself. But then this whole, you know, I can't go on vacation by myself. And <laughs> I can't do anything by myself. I'm codependent Listen, and working on it through therapy. But he says, he should, Christian says, one should live alone in a secluded place. Okay, I'm going to be honest. Also, I agree with you, Shama. Wait, I before first, you get there, can I yeah. just say, do you remember yeah. that time that you try to go to one of those tanks where there's no noise or anything oh like, yeah one of those flow therapy tanks and you almost died it was the worst day of my life <laughs> because I, I was just <laughs> in that tank alone by myself so I don't really like this verse please help me please help me understand it yeah, okay Shamla if you wanted to go back yeah. to your point otherwise I can say something uh, I'll just say one quick thing I was going to say that in the next couple of verses actually he starts mentioning secluded plays do this retract secluded plays or that so I'm thinking that he's almost like you know how we've said before that the path of bhakti is the most direct because you don't have to go to the Himalayas and renounce everything right. yes. like that, you know? So maybe like, I think almost like Krishna's laying out what you should do if you don't have the highest path of bhakti. Yeah, this is, I think this is a particular description to dhyana yoga, which is exactly. meditation and meditation isn't bhakti yoga. Ah, that should be a huge clause. So we're talking about things to do when you don't have bhakti. So Ooh, within, wee, wee, yeah. Wee, wee, wee. Yeah. And, and can I read this for a second so that it all makes sense? It says all other yogas, meaning these kinds of like uh, what we talked about, karma yoga, dhyana yoga, dhyana yoga, so mm -hmm. they sound very similar. All these other yogas are but means to come to the point of bhakti yoga. Right. So right. they're all kind of like steps in this ladder in which bhakti yoga is the ultimate goal. Exactly. So like if you're not the kind of person that can be secluded or like be alone, that that's fine. You don't oh have God. to do this, right? Oh this is just one step. And this step sometimes, it, it also says that these types of practices sometimes kind of have an end point where you don't find full satisfaction within right. these, right? Fair, so fair, then fair. that's why you kind of end up seeking bhakti yoga at the end of the day. But we're right. still going to talk about them because for some people, this might be the way to get and to bhakti so yoga. So it could be like secluded place in your house where you can go and meditate yeah, in a corner right, or in sure. the garage. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, better. <laughs> yeah, because yes. we've said before, even the topmost yogi who has all these mystic powers and is meditating alone in the mountains, he is not as great of a yogi as someone who has love of Krishna. Yes. Yeah. I also wanted to point out that in this, um, the English translation, it says a transcendentalist. And I, at first I was like, what does that mean? And then I looked up and you know how there's like a, the Sanskrit word and then there's the English word next to it kind yeah. of defining it. It says yogi. And then the English word for it is transcendentalist. So for us, oh. yogi has become a really common word that we would use kind of without right. needing an English word. 
But if we're being technical, this podcast would be called The, the Modern Transcendentalist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Solid. Yes, because you're trying to transcend this material world. I love that. Right? That's so cool. I just wanted to put that out there because I think the word transcendentalist is going to be coming back up. And right, it's right. good to keep in mind. They just mean yogi. Just they mean the yogi. person <clears throat> seeking for something greater. Right? Got it. Right. Okay. So the first line of the purport I actually like, and we can maybe break it down. It says, Krishna is realized in different degrees as number one, Brahman, number two, Paramatma, and number three, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So let's just talk about that for a second. What is Brahman? Shama Sangeeta. Uh, <laughs> I think she said your name, Priya. No, I think, I think I'm pop quizzing you right now. The Supreme <laughs> Brahman. Brahman is the all-pervading energy. Exactly. Yeah. Like Kind of like you go outside in nature and you think, okay, oh, I feel so connected to God and the creation. You're experiencing... <laughs> His creation, his Brahman, his energy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not directly, you're not experiencing the artist, but you're experiencing his painting. Boom. Yes. Boom, Next one. Paramatma, Paramatma Sangeeta. Is the, the is, <laughs> is the Krishna that is inside of you. How you Beautiful. know how like every living entity has a little bit of Krishna inside? That is the technical word for that is called Paramatma. That right. is the little bit of God that's inside of or you. Or in Priya's words, the sparkle next to your heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the supreme personality of Godhead? So the Spog, the SP Supreme Person of Godhead, is Krishna. <laughs> I, was like, I like to call him what? Spoggy. Oh, nice. <laughs> it, it reminds me of us. Uh, uh, what is that? Uh, I was going to say Star Wars, but it, that's not the correct <laughs> thing. <laughs> but uh, Spoggy is also known as Krishna. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Right. So these are the different stages. And I mean, you know, it made me think like one who practices dhyana yoga meditation, you might not necessarily be connecting to the supreme personality of Godhead. You might be meditating and connecting to the Brahman energy, but you might not necessarily be directly connecting to Krishna, right? Yeah. But then it says uh, that the cool thing about it is that at the end mm -hmm. of the day, the impersonal Brahman is the spiritual ray of Krishna. Right. And so you're still sort of connecting, right? Or you might be thinking like, okay, I'm meditating on myself and thinking, but you're connecting to the super soul and the super soul is also a part of Krishna. So even if you are kind of meditating without thinking of Krishna directly, considering that you're meditating on something higher, which could be the energy of Krishna, then it's still kind of connected. So that's right. kind of nice. I love that how you said the impersonal Brahman is the spiritual ray of Krishna and the super soul is the all pervading partial expansion of Krishna. So like you said, they're both a part of Krishna. So even if you're not directly going for this, like being attached to the Supreme Personality of Godhead or Krishna, you're attached to his energies, his expansion. So that's like, you know, you're, you're on your way. You're not totally off track. So yeah. it's like it's like Krishna is the sun, and you're just wor you're worshiping the rays when you're exactly. worshiping. Yeah. worshiping yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, exactly. Got it. Exactly. So it's like you could go more direct, but it's not like I mean you're you're not going backwards. I mean you're, yeah. you're making some progress. And to that point, there's a really good line here that says. <laughs> so they're also kind of mentioning impersonalists and yogis, and they're kind of right. comparing them, right? So the impersonalists would be the people that are thinking that God has no form, right? So right. the people right. that are worshiping the rays. Yes. Whereas the yogis are the people that are looking to worship or like learn and focus on the sun itself, Krishna, it. right? And so they're talking about, and I really like this because I think it's what has given me a foundation for being really open to all religions. Mm -hmm. It says, impersonalists and yogis are all instructed herewith to be constantly engaged in their particular pursuit so that they might come to the highest perfection sooner or later. Meaning that 
we don't discourage you from your path because at the end of the day, if you're kind of going in that direction of seeking for God, you will eventually find him. Yeah. Right. So like whether you're a Christian, whether you are a Muslim, whether whatever religion you might Mm -hmm. be, if you're actually practicing the principles, right? Whether you're an impersonalist, whatever you might be, if you're practicing the principles, you'll come to the sun at the end of the day, sooner sooner or later. Yeah. It just might take you a little bit longer, but I think it's like, we've all been in those yoga classes where it's like, Oh, feel the light around you. Worship the light around (laughs) you, that type of stuff. Right. And that stuff is like, it's, it's good. And the people who are worshiping that light Mm -hmm. or that energy or that nature, and even some religions that don't have like a a face to the name God, it's uh, they're worshiping the energy of God. And so, we shouldn't chastise them for doing that. Should right, encourage right. Them. We should encourage them to do what they need to do because eventually, hopefully, maybe through their service, they find their way to a more personal relationship. Yeah. Exactly. I, I think, like for me, particularly, a personal relationship is needed. I, I couldn't, I don't know, for, for particularly for me, I can't imagine. I'm a personable person. Like when you, <laughs> that's a personable that person. Okay. <laughs> like if you are in person with me, I'm full on, right? Yeah. But if it's like, if you live 600 miles away, I'll call you every now and then, but our relationship isn't going to grow to the same extent. And for me, I feel like that's kind of how I feel about my relationship with God. The fact right. that I am uh, able to picture what my God looks like and what he likes to eat mm-hmm. and and what, you know, like these right. these qualities and these things that are very personable make yeah. it easier for me to develop a relationship. So even though we're like, yeah, anyone who is practicing faith faithfully in their path, like it's going in the right direction. Um, right. I do think that there's something really special about a personal relationship. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, almost like who's the, the other end, who we're in correspondence with. We have a direct name, address and location. We're not just sending our love up into the ether, but it's a lot more channeled. And I mean, that's why in one point in the purport, it says a, di- a directly Krishna conscious person is the topmost transcendentalist because such a devotee knows what is meant by Brahman and Paramatma, meaning we know what all these energies are. We know the Lord. We know his impersonal and personal energies. We know him in the heart as Paramatma. Like, you know, they say to know someone is to love someone. I know I've mentioned that before. So we really then deeply are trying to get to know Krishna. And at one point in the Gita, he says, I think something along the lines of only one in the million really tried to know me. Mm -hmm. So we're really trying to take steps towards him to deeply know him or to love him. So yeah, I, 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 going back to the first line of this, um, of this verse, actually, to a yogi should engage his body, mind, and self in relation with the supreme, and that does cause like a very like it's a personal thing, right? Mm-hmm. I have an example of um of my mom actually, like about a month ago, her car got stolen from <gasps> the driveway, right? Oh my and God. my mom is the least materialistic person ever, right? Mm-hmm. She didn't even care about her car getting stolen. She was just like, that's fine. But there was a little statue of baby Krishna inside of the car. And she was so heartbroken because we've had that car for a really long time. And she was like, I just want to see my Krishna again. I just want to see my Krishna again. Right. She was the epitome of like, have like, she was crying and she had her body, mind and self in that relationship with that little deity of Lord Krishna in the car. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the only thing that she was craving, right? Mm. Just missing him. And then three weeks later, the police police call her up and was like, 
oh, we found your your car. It was stolen by a bunch of crackheads. And and so the police returned her car and the Krishna was inside. And so she was like, oh, Krishna just wanted to go for a joyride and he came back to me, right? But it's like, she's literally, like, she really taught me that engaging your body, your mind, and yourself in that relationship is so, so, so important, you know? And, and I love that because the more of ourselves that we can engage, the more we enter, enter this trance-like state that they talk about here in the purport. It says, one should always think of Krishna and not forget him, even for a moment. Concentration of the mind on the Supreme is called samadhi or trance. So then it's not a mechanical process, but if the more we can dedicate just our full heart, mind, and soul to Krishna, we become almost like in a trance, like nothing can break our distraction, no mental or physical pain can take us away because in fact we feel we need it the more mental and physical pain we're in we need that connection yeah i want to share one quick thing i could say so much about this but i'll say one quick thing about my spiritual master who when i think of the word samadhi i think of him because even up until the very very end as he was preparing to leave his body he was chanting he was meditating he was thinking of krishna and not anything deviated him even his spiritual master so my guru's guru told him maharaj you don't you don't have to chant right now that's okay he was like in more pain than we can even imagine and at first he told him please please don't give me that order i have to chant mm-hmm. and he said if i don't if i myself don't struggle how will i ask my disciples to struggle and that really touched my heart because i felt like you know it honestly sometimes is a struggle we have work families, responsibilities. We we have one foot in this world and it's not always easy. It's not always just a walk in the park. Sometimes it's going to be difficult, but through thick and thin and through ec- ecstatic symptoms of love or through suffering, I need to stay focused and chant because when you're in that samadhi-like trance, nothing else is as important as cultivating my relationship with Krishna because that's the ultimate purpose. That's why we're all even here in the first place. Yeah. So in, in terms of that, that's a really lovely thing. And I, I do feel like your guru was really exemplary in how he did that. So mm-hmm. lovely to see Thank that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, connecting it back again to dhyana yoga, I think the concentration, it it's like because you're meditating, you have to be concentrated. And, and it right. says here that in order to be concentrated, you have to avoid external uh, disturbances, uh, avoid it. You have to avoid disturbances by external objects. So like right. other things not to disturb you. But then it also says that you have to um, not hanker after unnecessary material things. And I think this connects really nicely to your story, Shama Sangeeta, with your mom. Mm. Because it says, um, it's kind of talking about like how you're understanding that everything belongs to Krishna. Yeah. So it says, uh, when one is not attached to anything, but at the same time accepts everything in relation to Krishna, one is rightly situated above possessiveness mm. one oh, yes right like you're not possessive you're like detached and that's super helpful in being able to focus concentrate and like actually focus on what matters right. and meditate it says on the other hand one who rejects everything without knowledge of its relationship to krishna is not a com- it's not as complete in his renunciation so mm-hmm. this is like the opposite end where everyone's like oh i'm gonna be a minimalist i'm not gonna have anything in my house even though they're not actually understanding right. that why we would even do that right mm-hmm. it's like false renunciation false renunciation and we've talked about how that's not actually helpful it's really good to understand where you're at and work your way slowly up not to pretend like you're in this level of where i don't need right. anything and you know that that's unnecessary right, we've mentioned if not it becomes almost like an obsession like i hate sense enjoyment so much i'm gonna always think of 
sense and joy. You hate it so much that you're always thinking about it. How dare that person do it? How dare you? Right. So it's it's not about that. And then it says everything belongs to Krishna, and thus Mm. he's. That person who understands this is always free from feelings of personal possession mm-hmm. mm. and is able to practice perfect yoga. Yeah. Right. My mom didn't care that her her car and was I stolen. Love that. Yeah, she wouldn't care. Also, I wanted to correct the the police didn't say, "Oh, it was stolen by crackheads." It, <laughs> it was later concluded that there was crack paraphernalia paraphernalia inside the car. Oh, and I thought you were just making that up. No, no, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so the police were like, oh, they were sold by crackheads. We literally came to the conclusion. I, I this see. is not part of the Gita, but like, I just wanted to clarify that point for our listeners, just in case okay. anybody was wondering. Yeah, um, They were waiting on the edge of their seats for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> crack paraphernalia found in the car. Dear Lord. Yeah. Okay. Well and then. One line I wanted to say this the line... <laughs> Sorry, okay. continue. The line, right, <laughs> huh, right before uh, Priya, you had said about not hankering for unnecessary material things. The line right before that, I also really like. It says he should be very careful to accept favorable and reject unfavorable conditions that affect his realization. So that's a very nice line, but to actually apply that is difficult. Like, okay, when we go about our day-to-day life, how... I mean, how often do we consciously think when we're presented with an, uh, an option of an activity, what to do, a situation, an event, do we think, will this help me in my path of bhakti or will this bring me down in my path mm. of bhakti? So to use that almost like a filter, and I know it might feel artificial at first, and we might not 100% do it all the time, but the more and more we can get that in our mindset, like, will this really help me or distract me? the more progress we'll rapidly make, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I think this is applicable to anything you do. If it, if, yeah. it, if bhakti isn't the goal, it's applicable to anything you do. Because when you're in college, you have to kind of, like the, every make stage sacrifices. of your life, right? When you're in college, you have to decide, oh, do I go to this hangout with my friends or do I study? What will help me in my path exactly. to like graduating? Mm-hmm. Yep. Or when you are, um, you know, coming home from work and you're tired, you say, should I, would I go on a walk and get some fresh air or should I Netflix and chill? Like right. whatever it might be. Right. So like all these choices are always there. It's just remembering what our goal is. Right. right, right. And so like, our goal in this case, if we're practicing bhakti yoga, is to be a bhakti yogi. And so right. what are these favorable or unfavorable <clears throat> conditions, things in life that will help us or hinder us in that process? Right. Yep. That's and real. you know, oftentimes they're tiny little, little small steps that we take. Because like oftentimes I'm a perfectionist. So I sometimes think if I don't have a whole chunk of time to do whatever, read the Gita or a whole chunk of time to do this or that, I straight up don't do it because I want to do it really well and really in depth. But I've noticed then, then with that mindset, that I ended up putting it off, 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 and it doesn't happen. So then I start, okay, whatever minutes here and there I can do, even if it's the 20 minute drive to work, I'll put a podcast or I'll put something that'll like be spiritual and elevate my consciousness. Or even if I have 10 minutes here, I'll start chanting as many rounds as I can in that gap. So like you start maximizing all the in-between moments and every little baby step you take in a certain amount of time, it becomes a big action. So it's not like I don't know. I'm throwing that out there because I know that was something that I sometimes felt. No, for felt. sure. I actually came to the same sort of realization the other day. And for me, it was more like this big, big, <laughs> very big, big, very big. <laughs> That's my Hispanic word of the day. All right. Um, very big uh, tasks that I had to do, whether it was like um, clean out the 
the balcony or whatever, like big projects around the house where I'm like, oh my gosh, I need three hours to do this, but I can't find three hours to do this because I'm doing this or this or that. And I realized recently like, okay, what if I just do five minutes of picking up three things, 10 things, and I do this every day, I'm actually going to get it done versus like trying to wait for those. Exactly. Or or this is something that I recently heard from someone too. And I didn't realize how many people uh, related to this. But the idea that like when you want to call a family member and you haven't talked to them for a while, so you think like you have to have a lot of time in right, order to talk to right. them because you haven't talked to them in so long. And so you make this big mountain about the fact that, God, I owe them like two hours to talk on the phone at this point because I haven't talked to them for three months. And like, you know, like you make up this thing and then you never call them and then it just accumulates. But what if you just call them on your five minute drive to the grocery store and you're like, hey, just want to check in how you're doing? Like if those few minutes right. here and there, how they add up versus like this grand big thing that we're making mm-hmm. up in our minds. So I agree with the point you were making for sure. It works in all aspects of our lives. Yeah. I like this verse because it talks, Christian talks about being a yogi and this giving up this feeling of possessiveness. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that us as, as people who are learning from the Gita, learning from Krishna, possessiveness can be so many things. It can be possessiveness of people, right? (laughs) In our lives. It can be possessiveness of ideas or jobs Mm. or things that you think that you deserve, right? right? And it's like giving up this notion that like we're not in control we don't own anything what do we take with us when we die we don't take any of this stuff so i think krishna is really trying to hone in on this fact of like giving up possessiveness because it's like giving up control it's like Mm -hmm. surrendering to what is destined for you you know exactly even the, the things we hold dear to our hearts that we think comprise our own sense of self we're just borrowing that. We've just been given to it, uh, it by Krishna. Yeah. So whatever qualities we like about ourselves, I think, okay, we can acknowledge it and we can definitely be grateful for it. But from there, I think it's an important step to add, not just that I'm so this, I'm so that, but like, okay, thank you, Krishna, so much for giving me X, Y, and Z qualities. Now, please let me channel it to do something to give back. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Instead mm. of possessiveness of ego, right? right. It's like, like I'm ego. so great, yeah. I'm so pretty, yeah. whatever. But how do we turn that possessiveness of ego into to bhakti? I like that possessiveness of ego. Yeah. 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 And it's like, and it's exactly what you said. It's like offering it back to Krishna. How can I use right. this to serve you? That's right. Nice. So it doesn't mean we don't have eyes. We have eyes. We can see. We, we can, and it's good if we can see what we've been given because then the more we know ourselves in that way, the more we can use our natural gifts to give back. So we definitely can see it, but like knowing how to maneuver that. Yeah, love that. I like the thought process of possessiveness of many things, not mm-hmm. just objects, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think yeah. it's really valuable. Objects, people's things that you apply for that you think that you deserve. Or you even ideas. I mean? yeah. Like ideas, I've definitely yeah. been the one, like been one to think like, well, I thought of that first. Why is yes. this person doing it and then getting credit? And then I think right. back and I'm like, oh, why am I even thinking that way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Key and Peel have, you know, Key and Peel, they have that yep. skit that one person tells his friend the joke and his friend says it aloud class laughs and he's internalizing i said that i said that (laughs) yeah he got all the credit all the last i said that yeah (laughs) exactly so that's that's something to work on right Mm because why are we at the end feeling this way because we want control like you were saying shama singita and i think that's control recognition Mm -hmm. but the moment we let go of control 
And I was talking to a friend about this. The moment that we let go, it is simultaneously the hardest thing to do and the easiest thing to do. Yeah. The hardest mm. because we're so ingrained to have control over everything. Our, mm. our lives need to be like this. We're going to apply for this job and get this. We and panic. Gonna, yeah. Right. Mm. But the moment we say, OK, Krishna, I really don't have any of this stuff. And we throw our hands in the air and we surrender. Mm. It is simultaneously the hardest and easiest thing to do. Yeah. And once we do it, oof. I just, the anxiety just goes away. You yeah. Know? yeah. Shama Sangeet, I love the visual when you said throw your hands in the air. It made me think there's a song by an artist who's within the Bhakti Yoga community that talks about something like that. Like it's, I know it's hard to let go of the control, but throw your hands in the air and the river will carry you. You're not falling or drowning. I promise you're mm -hmm. going to be carried. And that analogy of the river, I can add one more thing that my spiritual master would say. He said something like in this life, it's kind of like we're going down a river. And when we, when we're in the banks of the river in the shore, we're wading through the thickness of the of like it's, it's shallow water. So we're waiting and we're trying to get deeper and it's difficult. It's a struggle. We're holding on to all of our dreams, our aspirations, our goals, possessions. But the second we get to a certain depth in the river, the river will just automatically grab us and take us to Krishna. It just yeah. pulls us effortless, effortlessly. While in the beginning of our path of bhakti, it does feel like more of a struggle. So that analogy of the river, I think is very, um, deep because yeah you can definitely feel that you're putting more effort when you're in the shallow banks of the river to get to the deep side mm -hmm. once you get to the deep side the current just takes you yep so and it requires in, faith though right mm -hmm. in terms of letting letting go of control i think a really practical example that we might all have experience or most people experience is like finding a partner right mm -hmm. Like some, for some people, it's like, I want to find someone. I want to find someone. They're so, they're like, I have to meet people. I have to do all these things and nothing works. And then the moment they say, you know what? I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to chill. I'm going to yeah. focus on working on myself. They they find someone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? So like that letting of control and it's really difficult. But once you get there, like you were saying, it's incredible. It's a really nice feeling once you kind of let go. It's peaceful, right? right? Yeah. And there's, there, what, like, there's this notion where it's like you can't have anxiety and stress um when you have faith right? right those are those those are like antonyms like you they're they right. repel each other right you can't so live in a hard. place of anxiety and stress if you have faith <laughs> i want to i want to share one talk i had with my students recently about faith because i was talking about sharing a bit about where i was with my spiritual master la 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 we got on spiritual topics and one girl gaia starts talking about like essentially she starts asking yeah, but how do we know kind of like it's all real, you know? How do we know this that God's really there? It's all real, you know? And then she's asked, the next step was like, okay, and people that dedicate their lives to this, how do we know that they're not just convincing themselves after so long of doing this that it's real? And one other kid across the room was like, what is this, like a religion conspiracy theory class? And I was like, shush, Patrick, that's a great question that Gaia just had. And I think like most of us on a spiritual journey might encounter certain thoughts at some point or another of like, yeah, I'm putting so much time into this. Is it really, really real? So when you said faith, this popped into my head because I told her like, Yes, it initially requires faith to start it, but at one point it even goes beyond faith because it's kind of like, okay, do the case study on yourself. Do the experiment on yourself. I have this set practice. If I'm going to do it consistently over a span of time, every single day on myself, I'll start noticing internally the changes and 
that solidifies my initial leap of faith because it no longer becomes just have faith, just have faith, but you're feeling it. You can't deny the existence of this growing presence in your heart. And that's when I think she asked, but what if you're not just convincing yourself that it's real after doing it for so long? And I told her, well, I think because the results that you get are beyond your expectation, beyond anything I could have concocted in my mind. If it's something I would have expected, okay, but you start experiencing changes that are beyond what you can yeah, well, you can imagine in your mind. And she kept asking some questions and her stepbrother was in the class and he turns around and he says, Gaia, you're not listening to her. It's just because you haven't dedicated enough time on your spiritual path and have no faith, but listen to her answer. And I was like, oh man, these kids are sharp. Wait, how old is Gaia and Patrick and Gaia's stepbrother? How these are old? all kids who are, uh, they're in seventh grade. So what, seventh grade 14. would be like, no, 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 no they're 12 because in, thir in eighth grade, they're 13. So these are oh, kids 12. who are like, maybe 11 turning 12. These are really smart questions. Oh, these are super smart kids. Like yeah. I feel like as a whole, the society is advancing more and more and more. And it just cracked me up when Sam was like, it's just because you haven't dedicated yourself, Gaia. You have no faith. You haven't done the experience yourself. Oh my God. I love <laughs> Man, when I was 12, I was like, what color fun dip am I going to eat? You know what I mean? But these are like big questions. That's right. amazing. So I thought it was really cool that like we talked about it and yeah, I agree, Shama, it initially takes faith, but then it becomes very tangible and it takes time. It's not always like I'm. you're feeling the tangible results. It takes patience, but at some point or another, you start experiencing something that solidifies, it, it, it solidifies your faith. Yeah. I think in terms of Bhakti Yoga, it's really cool too, because you get a combination of knowledge, right? So it's mm -hmm. like, at first, I don't know, I, I, I haven't had the experience of partaking in other religions, so I right. can't fully say, but... At first, for a lot of religions, it's like, yep, this is what we believe and uh, it's faith, right? But the cool thing about, I think, Krishna consciousness or Bhakti Yoga is that we get these texts like the Bhagavad Gita that right. actually state facts about what's happening in the world right now, right? right? Things that kind of prove to us that, oh, wait, this is some knowledge that is factually correct based on just like predictions and things that happen, right? Mm -hmm. And then and then you, you take, okay, this is what they're telling me to practice, right? To meditate, to do this, to do that. And then you try it and then you feel good. So at some point it becomes like, this also just makes sense, yeah. right? Yep. This isn't necessarily about the end goal of whether, although obviously it is, but it's not about the end goal of like, oh, what, do I, what am I going to get at the end of doing all of this? It's really mm -hmm. not about that process, but rather about like purifying yourself and becoming a better version of yourself. And so I think it's really cool that Bhakti Yoga like relies on faith also, but it yeah. also gives us like these tangible things to put into practice. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to share that. But yeah. Right, like the are, roadmap to uh, do this, yeah. you'll get this result. And you you'll try see it, it and you'll and, feel it. And yeah, mm -hmm. like you were saying, right? Just... Try it and see how you feel. Yeah. Do the case study on yourself. Love it. Yeah. And so I know that was a long one, but I think this is a very important text um, that talks about the desire and the possessiveness and the, the way that we need mm -hmm. to engage with God. Um, right. Is there anything else before we move on to texts 11 and 12? No, just no. a reminder to always engage body, mind, and self in the relationship with the Supreme. Beautiful. Love that. That's kind of like the whole summary of that. <laughs> Love it. All right. Chapter six, text 11, 12. To practice yoga, one should go to a secluded place and should lay kusha grass on the ground and then cover it with deer skin and a soft cloth. The seat should be neither too high nor too low and should be situated in a sacred place. The yogi should then sit on it very firmly and practice yoga 
to purify the heart by controlling his mind, senses, and activities, and fixing the mind on one point. Okay, I feel like I we need to say again the disclaimer because, you know... <laughs> this is dhyana yoga, this not bhakti yoga. Exactly. <laughs> you don't need to do all of this kind of when you're practicing bhakti yoga. Yeah, and it kind of says it here, actually. This, uh, w- there's one line, and I'm, I, I, I want to read a lot of this, but yeah. there's one line that says, but often this is not possible, especially for Westerners, right? Because a lot of these times it says sacred places refers to places of pilgrimage. In India, the yogis or the transcendentalists or the devotees, whatever you want to call them, all leave home and reside in sacred places such as Mathura, Vrindavan. What is that first one? Prayag? How do you say it? Prayaga? I don't know. Um, Excuse me, uh, Shamo Sangeeta. Oh, Prayaga. (laughs) No, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Prayag, maybe? Without the A? I don't know. P-R-A- Y-A-G-A. Prayag. Send us a voice note on Instagram. (laughs) Please tell us how to say it correctly. (laughs) Prayaga. (laughs) Okay, Mathura, Vrindavan, Hrishikesh, uh, Hardwar and the solitude practice yoga where the sacred rivers like the Yamuna and the Ganges flow, right? So like this is kind of prescribing to people who have the ability to go to these sacred places and practice this. But oftentimes for us who live in the United States right. or other countries that are not in India um, have don't have this facility to kind of do this. Also, it's not really bhakti yoga. It right. is dhyana yoga. Right, right. Yeah, it's not even the most effective for the goal we're trying to reach anyway. Right. And, and so, yep. It says the so-called yoga societies in big cities may be successful in earning material benefits, but they're not all suitable for practicing for the actual practice of yoga. He's right. It's very difficult for one who's not self-controlled. And if our mind is not undisturbed, we cannot practice meditation. But that's why it's said in the age of Kali Yuga or the present age we're in, you know, how like the whole world is divided into different, four different yugas. Yeah. Before you go there, I, I just want to like say, you said uh, it, like for right now, all the yogas in the world, they experience success in earning material benefit right and when I read that at first I was thinking like oh do they mean like money and then I realized Mm. no it just means material meaning like this body like your Mm. your body might feel better oh right right right. like your body might feel better when you do all these yogas but when we're talking about the yoga your soul feels better exactly I love how they worded that so-called yoga societies (laughs) (laughs) well like our intro about when you think of yoga, you might think of downward dogs and Lululemons, <laughs> but it's so much more than that. Yeah, exactly. So I just thought that was a really cool point yeah. that like yoga is helpful for the body, but bhakti yoga is helpful for mind, soul, spirit, everything, right? Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and that's yes, why then it's connected to bhakti yoga. And so in this age, in this present age that we're in, when <laughs> I love how it says here, when people in general are short lived, slow in spiritual realization and always disturbed by various anxieties, the best means of spiritual realization is chanting the holy name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's very difficult in our present condition of life where we're not all that... <laughs> that advanced spiritually, it's it's difficult for us to really focus. Time. I mean, even just look at in the past hundred years, what to speak of that, even like 10 years, videos are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Social media is changing to match our attention span. Everything is getting shorter and quicker and into smaller frames so we can digest it with our level of focus that we have. So anyway, point is that it's very difficult for us in our current condition to meditate for days on end as the transcendentalists and the yogis would back then in whatever, some secluded place in India. Mm -hmm. So for the current time, and that's like we said, not even bhakti yoga, but for the current condition, 
chanting the holy name of the Lord is the most beneficial. And there's a very important verse in here. Priya, can you can you uh, pronounce that verse? Because it's a very <laughs> prominent verse in the Bhakti Yoga philosophy yeah. because it talks about the importance of doing one thing during this Kali Yuga time. You ready? Should we Actually, do it? Should we all do it? I was going to say maybe our producer could sue it. Okay, no, fine. We'll do it together. <laughs> we'll okay, do it, let's do it, ladies. I want to hear you also, Shama Sangeeta. Okay. We're going to be doing it together I like totally the same way. I'm to do it because I don't know how to pronounce it. So you guys go and go. Hare Nama, Hare Nama, Hare Nama, Kevalam. Next line. Go for it, Priya. <laughs> from, the, from the top, Priya. From the top. Okay, okay, okay. I mean, I'm just reading it. Hare nama, hare nama, hare naiva kevalam. Kalo naisteva, naisteva, naisteva. Gatiranyata. All right. And the translation is, in this age of quarrel and hypocrisy, a.k.a. Kalyuga, the only means of deliverance is chanting the holy name of the Lord. There is no other way. There is no other way. There is no other way. What a beautiful verse. Isn't <laughs> yeah. it so, so beautiful? Hopefully we didn't butcher it too bad. <laughs> but yeah, but I it love is, it. It's true. It is. The it's, only thing that we can do during this time that you talked about, right. Shamali, this Kali Yuga time, is to chant the names of God. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, we're talking about Dhyana Yoga. We're just understanding what it means, how some people used to kind of go into this path, slowly path of Bhakti Yoga by doing through these processes. Um, but like you were saying, Shama Sangeeta, it's all only really about chanting the holy name. That's what we can do. That's how we can get closer. That's how we can get to Bhakti Yoga faster anyways. Mm -hmm. right. And so that sometimes comes in the form of kirtan, which yeah. um, is like a congregational. We've talked about this before. It's like musical when a bunch of meditation. people gather, musical meditation, everyone gathers. It's usually call and response. And, and then there's also other forms like japa, which is more of a personal um, meditation between you and Krishna. Right. Um, like a is, personal conversation with Krishna. Kind of. Yeah. Like I, I sometimes for people who have, you know, a Catholic or Christian background or whatever, they might understand like a rosary. Rosary. Kind of. mm. In Islam too. They oh, chant the cool. names of God on I that. don't know what that would be called. So I really oh, always uh, call it a rosary because I feel like yeah. that's something that most people understand. The Islamic rosary. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> so, we'll find out what that is. Don't, don't, don't quote us. Yeah, don't quote us. We're going to call but, it. We'll, I'll Google it. Okay, cool. Yeah, but we call it Japa. And so these are some ways in which we can chant the holy name of the Lord. Beautiful. Well... I, I think, think that's, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Modern Yogi Podcast. We will be back next time and we will tackle chapter six, text number 13. Bye. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Bye, everybody. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. beautiful souls if you like what you're hearing please follow us on instagram at modern yogi podcast and if you love what you're hearing please make sure to share a link to our podcast at modern yogi podcast with all your friends families and long lost cousins and if you have any questions at all send us a dm on instagram at modern yogi podcast and we'll be sure to get back to you thank you for listening to the, the modern, modern yogi, yogi.